I have some risk factors in my breathing, in my respiratory system, but I don't focus a whole lot on that. That's my mom. She's 75 years old, and she has chronic lung disease. And I am active with exercise, and I try and eat well most of the time so that I will remain healthy. And it's also very hard for me to feel confined. This is from a conversation we had recently about the coronavirus and what she would want her end-of-life care to look like if she were to get seriously sick. I found myself having to balance those thoughts, that aggravation of being confined, balance those thoughts with the real possibility of mortality. But what you also need to know about her is that she can do 40 push-ups in a row. And I'm not talking about the kind that you do on your knees. She's a downhill skier, and during the stay-at-home order, she purchased a chainsaw so she could cut down a dead tree in her yard. So she's strong, and she's healthy. But because she's at higher risk for serious complications, I knew I needed to ask her about her end-of-life wishes and what kind of life would be tolerable for her. I have to be honest, I did not want to have this conversation. But then I read an article in the New York Times, It's Time to Talk About Death, by Dr. Sunita Puri, and I knew that even though I didn't want to have this conversation, I had to anyway. I'll share more of the conversation with my mom later in this episode, but I first want to introduce you to Dr. Puri, I reached out to her because I think she has a real gift for helping people figure out how to initiate these difficult yet essential conversations. And her words are like magic. She's the medical director of palliative medicine of the Keck Hospital and Norris Cancer Center at the University of Southern California. And she's the author of a memoir called That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. Dr. Puri, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So during this coronavirus uh, pandemic, you've been really encouraging people to talk about death and dying, which is something you often do as a palliative care doctor. But obviously, there's so much more to palliative care than end-of-life care. And so I'm just wondering if you can start off by talking about the distinction between palliative care and hospice care, because I know those terms can often get confused. Yes. So palliative care is a team-based approach in medicine to identify and understand and ultimately alleviate the different types of suffering that patients and families experience when they're dealing with a serious illness. So that could be physical suffering, like the treatment of cancer pain, or emotional suffering regarding life adjustments after getting a diagnosis, and spiritual suffering that might include contending with big questions like what my life might be worth now if I'm so sick, or what, where do I find my life's meaning now if I had previously derived it from working all the time and now I can't work. And we address those domains of suffering with a team of various specialties. So there's physicians on these teams, nurse practitioners, um, there are spiritual care providers, 
And um, sometimes there's other people like music therapists or art therapy and so forth. And you can get palliative care right alongside treatments like chemotherapy or dialysis or advanced heart failure therapies. And the intention of doing both side by side is to allow the disease to be treated while also keeping a close eye on the person's quality of life as it changes throughout the illness. Hospice, on the other hand, is a type of palliative care with a team addressing all of those types of suffering, but it's usually within the last six months of life. In palliative care, you can receive our services at any age and any stage of the disease, whereas hospice, you must be able, we must be able to certify that you will live six months or less if your disease takes its natural course. So that's a time when, for example, we're not doing chemotherapy, but we are very attentive to the pain caused by the cancer. Or we might not be doing dialysis, but we would be treating the symptoms of failing kidneys. Well, thank you so much for that clarification. And, and what has it been like for you being a palliative care physician during this pandemic? To be honest, it's been very similar to how it's always been being a palliative care physician, in part because a lot of what we manage is uncertainty. And this pandemic has presented various forms of uncertainty and anxiety. So it's almost like continuing the practice that I've always done, but suffering is heightened for many different reasons. So in the past, I might have been able to have family discussions with patients and other doctors in person to make some difficult decisions about treatment and care goals. But now I have to do that with the family separated from their loved one, and we're having such a conference by Zoom, for example. Families cannot be with their loved ones, and that causes a tremendous amount of suffering and anxiety. Talking about whether people would want to be on a ventilator or whether it's really in their best interest has taken on a new sense of anxiety because of all the talks of, of potentially needing to ration scarce resources such as ventilators. And so amidst all the uncertainty ranging from the uncertainty of how COVID will affect a particular patient, the uncertainty of our own scientific understanding of COVID and its behavior, and the uncertainty about what the future will hold for all of us in terms of vaccine development, in terms of how our lives are going to look, in terms of how medical care is going to look. We hold all of that uncertainty in palliative care as we always have. What's been more challenging is that we really cannot sometimes offer death at home as an option because in various parts of the country, hospice is not caring for patients with known COVID infections just because of lack of PPE and risks of family member and hospice worker exposure. Um, and so there's a lot of difficulty discussing options that I may have been able to offer six months ago, but can't really offer now. So it's been very much a similar experience as before, but with greater amounts of uncertainty and anxiety coming not just from patients and families, but even from my colleagues in the ICU or in other places in the hospital. That's really interesting. And I, I wonder for you what it's been like having these end of life conversations um, over Zoom, for example, rather than face to face. And what are you missing most 
um, not having those conversations face-to-face with patients and family members? So I think what is hardest is that at least my perception is that I cannot offer the sort of compassion and support I would like to offer because I can't do so in person. And the technology, I think, prevents me from being as fully human with my patients and for having my patients and families not be able to be fully human with me because we're separated by a computer screen and Zoom software. And that's been a real challenge. I think we've managed it well because I always apologize in the beginning for the state of affairs and tell people that even though we're not together in person, I really hope that I can convey to you with respect and compassion what's going on for your loved one and how we can work together to make the right decisions for him or her. And so sometimes just acknowledging that this is less than ideal, but it's all we've got right now, actually serves to bring us all together because families feel the same way. They often feel like we don't really know a patient as we used to be able to because so few doctors and nurses are allowed to enter COVID patients' rooms. So it's not atypical for me, for example, to have a discussion about a patient I may never have examined because they are trying to let only truly essential uh, doctors who need to examine the patient to perform a procedure, for example, into the ICU, also to minimize exposure of various people. So to me, it feels really odd to have discussions with families when I have not been able to examine a patient or see their loved one's face. But again, it's the sort of thing that I just have to accept as the status quo right now and know that hopefully we will move forward and away from this. Wow. It sounds like, of course, everyone would like to have these conversations face to face, but that people are adapting in a variety of different ways. And I'm sure for you, I would think that you're even picking up on intonations and people's voices differently now that you're doing a lot of it over Zoom or a phone call. Yes, definitely. I think it's a huge shift in practice and mentality. But I think, again, part of the art of practicing palliative care is learning to be adaptable in different situations, be it a situation where I've been in several times of having an angry family threaten us in person throw a chair at us, meaning my team or other doctors, because we're having such a tough discussion and we have to find a way to be adaptable Mm -hmm. in that instance and with that family, or in situations where family members or patients are so devastated that we can't have a conversation right then because of grief. And so it just means being adaptable amidst uncertain times and conditions. And that's, I think that skill set is helping many of us to navigate this time. And so I know you've been encouraging people to have these conversations about end-of-life care and uh, end-of-life wishes with their family members. And obviously these conversations are a lot that we've never had before or we either have with a few family members. So we don't get a ton of practice having these conversations. And I'm just curious how you suggest that people like myself would approach these conversations with their own family members? Yes. So I think, first of all, acknowledging that these are difficult conversations. Um, 
And to say that having the conversation is a part of loving someone and wanting to respect their choices and be their voice when they're really sick. And I don't think these are easy discussions, but I think as I wrote about in a recent piece I wrote for the New York Times, that COVID, one of its unexpected benefits is that we have to confront our mortality because it really doesn't discriminate on age or other health conditions. We hear people as young as being in their 20s. We've heard children and infants dying from it. We've seen people who are much older dying from it, all of whom are suffering, whether they die or not. And so I think using the present circumstances to say, gosh, you know, mom, if you got sick, either from COVID or something else, because it's the something else that we're leaving out of some of these discussions these days. So regardless mm. of the circumstance, if you got really sick, what in what way would you want me to act on your behalf? Have you considered if you were in a situation where your heart stopped or you needed to be on machines to keep you alive, would those be things you would want to do for example, if you had a sudden accident versus if you were at the end of a chronic illness. Um, and I think, you know, these are discussions that unfortunately we don't have often in hospitals or clinic offices, and we don't have them in our homes. And for us to really get better at end-of-life care as a society, I really think we have to take it um, on as a project on both fronts. So. I would encourage people to begin discussions by making the most of what they're learning on the news about COVID, about how it doesn't discriminate between healthy and unhealthy people, and how we're all vulnerable. And so decision-making or starting to think about what someone would want for themselves in that circumstance, what their doctors would advise them in that circumstance is another conversation I really think people need to have with their doctors. Because as much as we try to honor patient choices, choices made theoretically in a vacuum do not apply to every situation that could arise. So talking to your doctors about what they would advise if you, in your current state of health, were to get really sick, again, either from COVID or something else, what would their opinion be on the utility of CPR or resuscitation for you? What would the utility be of putting you in the ICU or on a breathing machine? Would that be something we try for a set amount of time? And if you're not improving, that we don't continue those treatments. There's a lot of nuances to these discussions that I think I can't expect my patients and families to know unless they engage with me or ask for advice about how to have the discussions. Um, and I always appreciate it when they invite me to comment. It spares me from having to interject my comments out of concern for them. And it also, it, it kind of signifies that we are both on the same page, on the same team. That's really helpful to think about the nuances because I actually had a conversation with my mom about her end of life wishes if that if or when that day is ever to come. And I realized by having the conversation, there are just so many nuances, especially around coronavirus, that um, it's helpful to realize that I don't have to know all those answers. Yes. I mean, I think, again, in this era, perhaps more so more than ever in the recent past, 
the uncertainty around how this virus acts and how it can affect one person is a really what make it makes decision making really hard. So I always encourage people when you are well, when you're living at home, walking around or you know being helped and you're walking around, engaging in your normal life, that's the time to start considering these questions and to ask your doctor to weigh in. Because even amidst the uncertainty, we can at least help you figure out what are your priorities, what makes your life meaningful, what sorts of suffering would you be willing to go through for the chance of more time that is not necessarily the quality of time you describe, and how can we document all this in an efficient way? And now more than ever, amidst the uncertainties, the time to start having these discussions and to plan for the future. Well, so what would you say to the people who want to have these discussions right now and are feeling well, um, but they're also at the same time, just due to what's going on, just feel too down to initiate them? Because I know I felt that way um, before my family and I knew that the coronavirus was spreading throughout the U.S., we actually went to visit my parents in a different state and I was all ready to have end of life care wishes conversations with both my mom and my dad. And then as things started unfolding, I just realized I was losing energy. Like all I wanted to do was eat cookies and watch funny movies. And it was actually your article um, in the New York Times that made me realize I, I needed to have these conversations, even though I didn't want to. Um, so I'm just wondering what you would say to the people who just right now just feel so down and it, like it's impossible to have the conversation. I think that's a totally normal and human sentiment. And there are times before I had the discussion with my own parents that I felt I really don't want to have to do this. And that was the first conversation I had with them, which was years ago before COVID. So even aside from COVID, People can fear that topic. It can bring them down. These are natural emotions. What I would say, though, is that what will make you feel worse is if a crisis arises and you don't know how to deal with it. That will make you feel a range of feelings from anger, sadness, regret, the whole kind of all of the emotions associated with grief on a much higher scale if we avoid these discussions now. I read somewhere that someone said it's your civic duty not only to wear masks right now, but also to have these conversations because that is going to help everybody, doctors, patients, family members, to know what we should and shouldn't do for a particular person given their own values and preferences. And I think to supplement, one thing I should say is these conversations don't need to be a one-time deal. You could start them, you could step back, and you could continue them at another time. But I really do encourage everybody to view these conversations not so much as being about death, but as being about the sort of life your loved one wants for themselves, both when they're not sick and when they are sick. And I think that's one of the fundamental misunderstandings in our country about palliative care and advanced care planning. People automatically assume this is a dreary subject that will just get them down. And, and it can, certainly. 
But if it is framed as talking to your loved ones about what makes their life meaningful now and what sorts of care would they want to enable them to continue that in different circumstances when they're sick, that has a very different tenor to it than, mom, I'm afraid you're going to die of COVID and I won't know whether to put you on a vent or not. Do you want to be on a vent or not? That's not the sort of conversation I think people should be having. I think it should be couched in who that person is. I sometimes encourage people to ask their parents, do you remember when grandma died and she was she had horrible dementia, was in that nursing home? What did you think about how she died? Did you think that was what she wanted? And if you were that sick, what would you want for yourself? So talking about earlier losses, I think, can also put people in the frame of mind they need to be in to have this sort of discussion. But we must have it. Yes. Well, thank you so much. And it makes me think that I want to revisit my conversation with my mom and um, just Thank you so much, Dr. Puri, for encouraging people to have these conversations and for really helping us with the language to initiate them and, of course, everything you're doing for patients and their family members. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Isn't Dr. Puri amazing? She is so good at what she does. And what I love is that she reminds us that these conversations don't have to be a one-time thing that we can think of them as just another way to learn about the people we love. And what we learn may surprise us. I want to take you back to the conversation I had with my mom and share with you how it moved me in a way that I wasn't expecting. I mean, I actually have physical sensations of feeling confined, as if I'm tied up and then I can't have the mobility that I wish I had. I try and counter that with the fact that a lot of people don't, a lot of people my age don't have the kind of physical mobility that I do have and realize that this is a point in time that we just have to hopefully let it pass. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, I also think that I'm very happy with my life and if something happened to me now, and let's say coronavirus, because that's what's currently um, making the rounds uh, and causing havoc with people's lives. Um, If something happens to me, I've had a really wonderful life and that's okay. I mean, that's... Of course, I'm happy to hear that you've sort of reached a stage in your life of accepting that you might die sooner than later. Obviously, I hope it's a lot later. (laughs) And I know you've mentioned that to me before, that 75 was a major turning point for you. But it's also just really hard for me to hear. And... I know that you are 75 and we could all die at some point um, when we don't expect it. But this, obviously the coronavirus has really put everything at the forefront of my mind and I'm sure your mind. 
And it's just so hard because I know when I leave here, I I can't protect you and I'm I don't even think you necessarily even need protecting, but I feel like I can have some control while I'm here about how often you leave the house or whether you and dad wash your hands when you come back. And I know that when we go, I won't have that control anymore. And it's just scary because I don't know what's going to happen to you. And that's just really hard. And I know that's the case anytime I leave you, but just this feels like it's going to be an especially difficult time. I, I, I think you use a word that's very important, and that is control. And raising a family in your, in your career. I was not expecting to react that way. Hearing my mom say that she would be okay with dying made me feel what my husband and I used to describe our son's mixture of tears and smiles as a baby. Happy sad. But a couple things happened, as you know, that you don't have control. We ended up talking a lot about what we can and can't control, and the experiences in our lives that have rattled us, the ones that have cracked the illusion of total control. is that you had really serious asthma, life-threatening asthma. Like this pandemic. over all of us, and we never know when something's, you know, when, when the raindrops are gonna come. And it's true. We never know when the raindrops are going to come. But while I know I can't control when or how my parents start venturing back into the world, I can have some comfort in knowing that if something were to happen to them, I would know what to do, and what quality of life would be acceptable to them. I now know, for instance, that my mom wouldn't want to be permanently bedridden. I know she would want to be able to smell the juniper trees in her backyard and have the sun and the wind on her face. I know if she had to die alone in a hospital room because of the coronavirus, she would want something tactile, like a soft blanket or a stuffed animal. And for all the nuances to end-of-life care that I have yet to fully understand, I have to have faith that I will know what to do for my mom because I know her and that her doctors will help me. I know these conversations are not easy, but like Dr. Puri said, Having the conversation is a part of loving someone. It's about learning what makes their life meaningful. And so when my mom said this, And I would like your lives to be of the highest quality possible. Mm -hmm. And if that means putting resources toward keeping you healthy, you, your family, your siblings healthy, I would much rather do that than but have the resources put to me. Mm -hmm. I would, if there were two of us sitting here, you and, and I were sitting here, and there'd only be so much medicine, and one of us was gonna, one of us was gonna die from the coronavirus, I was, ah, there wouldn't be any choice, you know. Give it to you. I knew 
the thing that makes her life most meaningful is her family. Mom, I love you more than you could ever know. Thank you so much for opening up and letting me share this conversation. And thank you again to Dr. Puri for her wisdom and compassion. I hope you all will check out Dr. Puri's beautiful book, That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. You can find it at your favorite bookseller. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please do take care of yourself and look out for others during this difficult time. I'm Alexandra, and this is Six Months or Less.